welcome to the Ray Harryhausen Podcast, the show dedicated to the life, career and films of a special effects titan. Join us as we host in-depth discussions about the work, influences and legacy of this uniquely talented filmmaker. Brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, we will be delving into Ray's archive to bring a unique insight into his work, including exclusive audio from the man himself from our own archives. We will be joined by special guests for retrospectives, exclusive announcements and competitions. So this podcast is a must-listen for all fans of the world of Ray Harryhausen, animation and classic filmmaking. Hello and welcome to this very special edition of the Ray Harryhausen podcast. All of the editions are of course very special, um, but this one in particular because it would be very special to Ray Harryhausen himself. Um, I'm joined by Phil Nichols um, from the Ray Bradbury. How do you describe yourself, Phil? What is, it's not a Ray Bradbury Foundation. What, how do you describe your organisation? Um, well, where I am at the moment is the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies, which is part of Indiana University. Um, but this isn't where I'm personally normally based. I'm, I'm based in Wolverhampton, where I work for the University of Wolverhampton. Um, but I'm an advisor to the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies, and that's where I am today. So it would be fair to say that you're the kind of the, the go-to person for any Ray Bradbury um, sort of information. How did that happen? How have you become, if you like, in inverted commas, a curator? Would it be fair to call you the curator of, of Mr Bradbury's um, legacy? Um, not quite. There are other people who I think ought to be given that, that credit, but um, I'm, I'm sort of specialised in Bradbury's media work. Um, and I started purely as a fan many years ago. I started a website probably about 15 years ago, uh, just collecting together all the information I had about Bradbury's film, radio, TV work. Um, and it just grew from there. And then I ended up doing a PhD studying that, uh, which I've just completed. Well, it's, it's kind of perfect that we're speaking together because, of course, I'm joined again by our collections manager, Connor Heaney. And, Connor, what you do here at the Foundation as collections manager kind of overlaps, if you like, with the work that Phil does with, um, with Ray Bradbury and his legacy, doesn't it? And hello. Yes, hello. And uh, that's right. It's incredible how many parallels there are, really, for two men, two best friends born in the same year and who went on to have such incredible careers and their own specific paths. To, to have an archive for, for each of these men and the amount of material that they collected over the years is really fascinating and it's going to be very interesting to compare the kind of work with, that we do with the work that the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies carries out and to hear some of the things that, that you're working on just now, Phil. Um, but I guess the, the main thing to, to look forward to for both of us is the year 2020, which of course will be the centenary for Ray Harryhausen and for Ray Bradbury. And uh, there will be celebrations for both. And hopefully we'll also be able to overlap those as well. Just just to, to touch on that, what, what kind of things are you working on right now, Phil? Well, everything's still very much in the um, sort of speculative phase at the moment. Um, we've had some meetings this week where we've started discussing um, potential events. It's likely that there'll be some kind of event in Ray Bradbury's hometown, which is Waukegan, Illinois. Um, I'd like to put something on in the UK, in Wolverhampton, where I work. Um, and I'd love there to be something in Los Angeles as well, which is where Ray Bradbury made his home for, well, most of his life. Um, and of course, it was in Los Angeles that the two Rays met for the first time. So I 
in my mind, the ideal thing would be to have some kind of link up of these two centenaries in 2020 and have some kind of uh, combined screening. And LA would be the best place to do that. But um, I'm sure we could figure out other places as well. Well, the ideal thing is to have a screening of uh, of, of the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which was their, surprisingly their one and only collaboration. And Warner Brothers have done a, a spectacular HD remastering and restoration of Beast. And I'm wondering, Phil, have you had a chance to see that, the, the new Blu-ray version? Yes, I have, but I've, I've only seen it on a small screen. And it's one of those films that I would, I would, I've always wanted to see large scale because I'm sure that beast is supposed to be enormous. Uh, but I've only yes. ever seen them on TV. Well, we, we, we do a variety of talks, and I'm, I'm sure Connor would be delighted to do a talk in 2020 with a special presentation of Beast and with some of the artefacts. Connor, what, what artefacts do we have that we could bring along and support a, a screening with Phil? The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms is obviously one of Ray's earliest films, and as such, there um, is less material for that as there would be for a film such as Clash of the Titans. However, we still do have the original Beast skull, the resin skull created by Ray Harryhausen for the Redosaurus. And we also have the lighthouse. Believe it or not, we have the lighthouse from the film, the uh, the miniature lighthouse, which Ray created for that iconic scene uh, taken from the Ray Bradbury novel, The Foghorn. Uh, we also have a prototype of the Redosaurus, which is in remarkably good condition. We suspect that Ray Harryhausen came across some particularly good latex uh, for, the, for the mould for this um, this prototype creature. And so all, all of this material is available for display for a celebration of the beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And what I think is great about seeing these films on the big screen is that it takes you back in time. It gives you that feeling really of, of sitting in an audience in the mid-1950s and being just enthralled by the magic on screen, which is how the films are supposed to be watched, and also takes you, brings you back to that feeling of movie magic, which, of course, both Rays were so fond of. And interestingly, both Rays were, were friends, Phil. What, what can you tell, me, tell us about the, the friendship? Because, of course, they didn't meet in the world of film and television. They, they kind of knew each other personally growing up, didn't they? They did. Um, their, their first meeting was around 1938, when they would have been about 18 years old. Um, there's different accounts of how they met, but at least one account um, says that they met at Forrie Ackerman's house. Now, Forrie, as uh, I'm sure many of your listeners will know, was uh, a collector, an editor, an agent, a writer, um, very influential on a whole generation of uh, young film fans growing up through his magazines. Um, and Forrie's house was full of stuff. He had loads of um, sort of memorabilia from the King Kong film, which Ray loved, Ray Bradbury loved, and Ray Harryhausen loved. And apparently they met um, at Forrie's house. Uh, Harryhausen was there looking for photos of King Kong, and Ray was just there because he was there. Sorry, Bradbury was just there because he was there. And they met and they discovered they had a, a common interest. And very soon, Harryhausen invited Bradbury to go to his garage where he was putting together his little test films of dinosaurs. So this was back in 1938, long before either of them was uh, famous or established or anything. And the extraordinary thing is, if they both become writers or both became filmmakers, you'd think, well, there's a certain synergy there because they would have worked in the same pool. But there couldn't have been anything more different. And yet they're both iconic Rays, both Ray B and Ray H, are both iconic people in their own right. 
and the very fact that we're talking about them today and they reached a grand old age and they kept their friendship intact. I mean, it's really remarkable that um, all of that survived for that many years. I mean, what do you put that down to, Phil? Do you have any kind of theory around that longevity of friendship and collaboration? Well, they they both spoke of of never growing up. You know, they said that they, um, in their hearts, they were still 12-year-old boys or 13-year-old boys, the ones who'd seen King Kong in first run back in 1933. So they had that shared um, interest. I wonder also whether the friendship remained so strong because they were separated by thousands of miles for a lot of the time. Because, of course, Harryhausen moved to Europe and lived in England. Um, Bradbury... Um, started off in the Midwest of the U.S. and moved to Los Angeles and then stayed there for the rest of his life. Um, they kept a long-distance friendship and there was a long correspondence between them. They were always writing backwards and forwards. Um, and there are some of the letters here at the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies. And they're great fun to read. Um, t- typically, Harryhausen will write to Dear Brother Ray. He'll sign off as The Other Ray. Um, so it was a great, it was a, a distant friendship, but still a very close one. And when they did meet over the years, obviously they had a lot to talk about and a lot to celebrate because they both had their successes in their respective fields. Who knows what waits for us in nature's no man's land? The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms was about the first time we were brought together professionally. That's right. You know, seeing you again reminds me of the basic thing about friendship in this life is if you find two people who have similar loves, then they start a friendship. Ray fell in love with the lost world in 1925 out here on the coast, and I fell in love with the lost world in Waukegan, Illinois. And we finally met when we were both 18 and we discovered we loved dinosaurs and Willis O'Brien and the Lost World. And that film changed both of our lives. And that cemented our friendship. And we knew we were crazy because the whole world didn't give a damn about our loves. So we stuck together, hoping that someday he would animate dinosaurs and I'd write the screenplays. And that's how it finally turned out. And I remember... Uh, we had long conversations. Ray lived in Venice and I lived in Lemert Park. And we used to have long conversations about plotting out uh, ways of putting these dinosaurs on the screen with Ray writing the story and the script and my animating. I say there are things better left unsolved. I think a lot of people who were lucky enough to spend time with the two Rays and with Forry Ackerman as well and noted that the the years fell away as soon as they met up again. They were 12-year-old boys uh, in each other's company. And uh, if you you see any of the video footage, there's video footage of the two spending time and talking together or on occasion with Forry Ackerman as well. They really, they go from, you know, men in their 80s to 13 year old boys again and it's wonderful to watch you can see the years fall away that that youthfulness in their eyes and it's something that uh, Ray's daughter Vanessa speaks about quite often is that when the two got together they were they were very mischievous they were hilarious to watch and 
They enjoyed each other's company so much. They say you're only as old as you feel, and it, it brought them back down to their youths again. And uh, I think that's something really wonderful about their friendship as well. It kept them forever young. The first person I introduced my fiance to was Ray Harryhausen, the very first friend. Uh, that's how valuable his friendship was to me then and now. He was born to be Ray Harryhausen. It started the day he was born. It's not an accumulation. You'll learn other things later, but the spirit is there to begin with, and the spirit wants to learn and uh, accrues the knowledge, but you didn't suddenly discover because you discovered that the day you were born huh? and grew up to become himself. Unbelievable, fantastic, but I tell you it could happen. It could happen. I wonder if you know this little fact as well. Uh, Harryhausen was Bradbury's best man when he got married in 1947. Um, and there's, there's a nice little uh, anecdote in one of Bradbury's books about how uh, after the wedding ceremony, they piled into Harryhausen's car and he took them across town to wherever they were going next. Um, so, you know, it's a very, uh, a very close friendship when they were together. Like a, like a family almost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Susan Bradbury um, was interviewed um, at the memorial service in 2013 and uh, when she spoke to me she spoke in terms of Uncle Ray you know because Ray Harryhausen was very much considered to be her Uncle Ray uh, and so on and um, we're, we're going to go to a clip of that now this hasn't been heard before these these were filmed and recorded in 2013 when lots of people came to Ray's memorial so let, let's take a listen The, the memories I have, well, first of all, uh, Ray H. was my godfather. Uh, he has been in my life, all my life. Um, my mother didn't learn to drive until I was about nine, and I remember Uncle Ray getting us all in the car and driving out to Malibu to a place called the Alligator Farm. And it was just a reptile farm, and it was just absolutely wonderful. Um, in later years, uh, Uncle Ray and Aunt Diana uh, let me live with them for a while. And um, wonderful memories of Laurel and Hardy movies, long walks in Kensington Gardens with Uncle Ray. Um, he was just always there, as was Diana. Um, my father loved Uncle Ray more than I think any person on this earth. Uh, Uncle Ray was uh, the best man at my dad and my mom's wedding. And um, he was just always in my life. And I will miss him so much. But I know he and Daddy are just having the most wonderful time right now, eating hamburgers, watching Laurel and Hardy, um, coming up with some wonderful ideas that Uncle Ray will do the monsters and Daddy will write the story and I know they're in a good place together. I think they both stayed so vital because mentally they were still those 18-year-old boys. Uh, I know my dad never grew up, and that's why he was so 
wonderful. And um, I think Uncle Ray, in his own way, didn't grow up either. It's fascinating to hear Ray Bradbury's daughter talking there and, and, and seeing Ray Harryhausen very much as an uncle. In terms of personality types, both of them presented as being quite jovial and friendly. Ray Harryhausen, however, if he didn't have something positive to say about production, he would often say nothing at all. Ray Bradbury is famously on record um, not liking some of the adaptations of his productions. Um, most surprisingly, from my point of view, is the, uh, the television version of The Martian Chronicles with Rock Hudson, which is a very personal favourite of mine, both the, the book and the adaptation, and I enjoyed both enormously. And I was very surprised in more recent years when I bought the soundtrack, the Stanley Myers soundtrack to Chronicles, to find out that Ray Bradbury was really quite furious with that adaptation. And I'm just wondering how much of that is is fascinating to you, Phil, you know, researching what worked and what didn't and, and, and how adaptations played, because the one collaboration with Ray Harryhausen was eminently successful. I, I'm absolutely fascinated by that. That's one of the things that drove me to this um, to this interest. Was I, I would read Bradbury's comments about the films. I knew the stories the films were based on. I knew the films, and sometimes it's difficult difficult to reconcile his opinion with what you saw on the screen. In the specific case of Martian Chronicles, um, I think what you have to know is that he had worked since the mid '50s on trying to get the Martian Chronicles onto the screen, and he wrote several screenplays himself and he was very frustrated that every time the project fell through eventually it gets on the screen in 1980 um, and his description of that he, he wasn't really involved in the production he didn't write the screenplay it was actually Richard Matheson who wrote the, the script for the TV series uh, he, uh, Bradbury describes sitting at home with friends watching it when it came on for the first time and they broke out the beers and he said it's not a bad piece, but it's just boring. You consider that really to be the worst crime of all. He, he was, seemed to be okay if people were creative in their adaptation. So he quite liked Fahrenheit 451, which was a, uh, an adaptation of Ray's book, which deviated from the text, but did so in a creative way. He was quite happy with that. Um, but the Martian Chronicles, he just found tedious. It was so slow, badly directed, um, was the, the major project problem with that. Um, in fact, he said he provided a list of possible directors uh, to the production team, and the guy they chose was about the 30th on the list. Um, and actually, it was a director who had a, a good reputation, Michael Anderson, who had previously directed The Dam Busters and uh, Logan's Run, uh, but he seemed to have run out of steam by the time he got to the Martin Connick. And there was the Disney film uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes, another personal favourite of mine, which wasn't critically successful. But I think Ray did like some aspects of that, didn't he? That was more in Ray Bradbury's kind of uh, um, area of praise. Yes, he, he liked 
that film much more. And over the years, he came to say that it's not a great film, but it's a nice film, or it's a good film. Um, and that one, I think, captures the essence of Bradbury probably better than any other film that's been made so far. Um, the only problem with, with that film, I think, is the ending. It, it doesn't really solve the problem of the story very well. And it's not the same as the, the ending in the novel. So it's not as if they, they slipped up in doing a straightforward adaptation. They tried to do something different, and it didn't quite come off in the final edit. Uh, final edit. But that was one of those films where it was previewed to an audience, and the audience didn't respond very well. So the, the production company, which was Disney, kind of went into a panic, and they recut the film, they reshot it. But it's got some very nice moments and some excellent scenes, and Jonathan Price is, is perfect as Mr. Dark in that film. And of course, the music, the music score was changed, wasn't it? It was, it was one composer, then it switched. Um, it was it switched to James Horner, I think, after the, the previous score was thrown out. That's right. Originally, George George Delarue, a very good French composer who had scored for Jack Clayton before, um, for whatever reason, it was decided that that score didn't work, so they got James Horner in. And I think both scores actually do work. Both of them are very good. You can get both of them commercially, and they're both very good in their own right. Uh, but perhaps the Horner one was a bit more what an audience would expect to hear in a movie of that kind. In a state of suspended animation are the awesome creatures, the leviathans that roamed the earth at the dawn of time. And under certain conditions, a nuclear explosion could free one from his icy tomb. Then, guided by instinct, the beast would come back, back to the caverns of the deepest Atlantic where it was spawned. An armored giant, wreaking his prehistoric fury on modern man and his puny machines. Cities would be terrorized by the cruel intruder from the past. Populations crazed and panicked with fear by its destructive force. Granite and steel would crumble. Soldiers and their weapons would be powerless before the onslaught of the beast. The beast. The beast. The beast from 20,000 fathoms. So bringing it back to their relationship, why, why do you think they didn't work and collaborate together again? Is it, um, I mean, one of my theories is that their friendship was so solid that they didn't want to ruin it by making a film that either one of them thought was was, was not as good as it could be. Because I know Beast and 20,000 Fathoms, Ray Bradbury only has positive things to say about it. And he wrote essays about it as well, didn't he? Um, you know, there, there were some uh, other creative writings around Ray Harryhausen's work on that film. So such a, if you like, a golden time, a golden capsule in their lives, they probably felt they didn't want to, to risk cracking it perhaps with another creative um, adventure together? Um, it has to be said, they didn't actually work together on that film because somebody else wrote the script for it. Um, Bradbury came in to see Harryhausen while he was working on the film and apparently the producer said, while you're here, would you like to take a look at the script? And uh, because we're having some problems with it. So Bradbury says, yes, I'll take a look. He's taken into an office. He reads through the script and he says, well, I think this script isn't bad, but there's a scene in there that's similar to a story that I published in the Saturday Evening Post. And the producer's face goes white as he realizes, oh, my God, we've, we've lifted this story from Bradbury and we've forgotten that that's what we've done or something like that. It may have been totally innocent. Um, Nobody quite knows, but Bradbury's account is that the producer probably had made a, a terrible mistake 
and they decided to put things right by buying the rights to the Bradbury story. And of course, then they plaster his name all over the poster. So it's the beast from 20,000 fathoms from the Ray Bradbury Saturday evening post story. Um, so the two Rays didn't actually work together on that film, but obviously their names were associated through it. As the years went by, I, I think the, probably the main reason they didn't work together is that they were working in different spheres. Harryhausen moved to Europe and established that very successful collaboration with Charles Schneer and got very much into these sort of mythological-based um, stories. Um, whereas Bradbury was trying to not only continue his career as a novelist and a short story writer, he was trying to write screenplays for Hollywood, um, mostly based on his own books, but occasionally based on other things. Um, so I think they had their own priorities and they didn't quite mesh. But there were some occasions where uh, Bradbury sent things to Harryhausen, hoping that they could work together. And, um, I had a note of one of them. Um, yeah, in 1976, um, Bradbury sent uh, a piece of work that he'd been working on, a thing called the Nefertiti Tut Express, which is quite a bizarre little piece. He sent this outline to Harryhausen um, and hoped that they could work together on it. And Harryhausen thanked him for it. And, and in his letter, he says this. He says, one day the right subject will come along for us to work on together. Uh, Tempest Fugit and all that sort of thing. But one day this subject will come. So that was 1976. They were both still eager that they would work together one day. Yes, eventually time caught up with them and it, it never quite happened. But they, they certainly wanted to do it. I know as teenagers, the two would discuss uh, movie ideas. The two would discuss plans and what they were going to do when they were older. There's so many accounts where the two rays would be on the on the phone for hours talking about King Kong, talking about ideas, science fiction and all the great things they were going to do when they were older. And of course, both of them did go on to do great things, but um, I suppose that the mechanics of the movie industry and there are obviously more obstacles than you might expect when you're when you're starting out and you're young and idealistic. Uh, but uh, to be a fly in the wall and listen to their conversations as 19-year-olds would have been wonderful because this these were two young men just letting their imaginations run riot and really stretching the boundaries of what might be possible. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. Um, it, one of the delights of being here in the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies is that I've, I can see the correspondence that survives. Um, there aren't a huge number of letters, but there are quite a few, and it's great to kind of eavesdrop on those conversations. And I'm wondering whether in the um, Harryhausen Foundation, whether you have the other end of the correspondence, because here it tends to be the letters that Bradbury received that have been preserved, but not the ones he sent out. Tell us about the letters that um, that Ray Bradbury wrote, because we have a vast wealth of material, over 50,000 items in our archive. What what size of archive are you looking at there? And you were talking about letters. Oh, there are many, many thousands of letters here. Um, mostly it's the incoming letters that came into to Ray Bradbury. Occasionally copies of letters that he sent out if he kept a copy, but he didn't always keep a copy. Uh, so we've kind of got one side of the correspondence here. There's um, a whole, I would guess, a whole cabinet devoted to letters from famous people. Um, and it's fascinating to see the number of people that Bradbury knew uh, over the years, filmmakers, actors, uh, fellow writers, all sorts of people. Um, and the people here have done a very good job at, at cataloguing the correspondence. Um, but there's still 
work to be done. There's still some um, letters that are still being read at this moment and being catalogued now. So he wrote, obviously, he would have written to Ray Harryhausen. Connor, do we do we think we have, um, because Ray Harryhausen not only kept copies of the letters he sent, he kept everything he received. Yeah, undoubtedly, uh, Ray kept everything, and I mean everything. So if you wrote Ray a fan letter in the 1970s, chances are we'll still have it here in the archive, and in particular letters from, from his good friend Ray Bradbury he kept, and they're... They're, they're carefully held within our archive. So John Landis, when we met him in Germany, asked me if we still had his postcards to Ray throughout the years. And of course we do. Ray kept them all. So we've got all these wonderful postcards from, from, from the Landis family throughout, throughout the years where he'd think of Ray and just pop him a quick note to tell him where he was. Uh, so moving on to, to Ray Bradbury, we have all these letters from throughout the years. And I would say that Ray Bradbury's name is one that crops up almost more than anybody else's in the archive, with one or two exceptions, because he was so important to Ray and their correspondence through the years was incredible. So we have copies of all of Ray Bradbury's books and they're all personally signed. And it's it's really interesting even just to look at the signatures because it starts off to Ray and then a few years later it's to Ray and Diana and then a few years after that it's Ray, Diana and Vanessa. And there's always a little illustration, there's always a little message of some sort and it's lovely not only just to have all of these books signed, but to see their personalised messages through the years. Now, I wonder, you know, it just can't be a coincidence. These two men were born in the same year. Is it something about being born and growing up in the 1930s and going through the Great Depression that caused both of these great men to, to keep all of their material, to keep everything, not just their models and their manuscripts and their scripts and so forth, but all related correspondence and every you know detail of their lives um, in case it became of later use because I can see that the Ray Bradbury collection is, is astonishing and as John says we have 50,000 items here to work through and it, it paints such a, an amazing story and I think now that's what we're starting to realise is that not only are the artefacts themselves interesting but the way they link together and the, the story they tell and the picture that they build is, is so unique and so important. Absolutely. I, I tell you what, the collection you're describing sounds very similar to what, what's around me here in the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. In, in the room next to where I'm sitting at the moment is uh, most of Ray Bradbury's papers, his manuscripts, his correspondence, um, and also loads of copies of Ray Bradbury's books. The room I'm sitting in at the moment is a reconstruction of Ray Bradbury's office. So it's got the actual furniture, the real typewriter, all of the books um, in this room that I'm in are books that were owned by Ray Bradbury, so they're his personal library, and also all the effects that he had. There's a model of a dinosaur behind me, a globe of Mars, there's all sorts of film memorabilia, toys, all sorts of stuff. Um, and just like you've described Harryhausen keeping everything, Bradbury kept everything, pretty much. Well, we do know of some things that have disappeared over the years, but for the most part, he kept everything. Um, and it's great to hear that you've got the Bradbury end of the, com uh, the correspondence. And interestingly, the way you describe the office, you could have been talking about Ray Harryhausen's office. We've kept everything in Ray's, from Ray's office, his paraphernalia, his workshop, books he was sent. He had a vast library of books um, that he'd been sent. So it really does mirror the, the lives that they, uh, that they both had. So it's extraordinary that even though they worked in different fields, their day-to-day -day working practices or the office that was in their house would really find many 
many common elements. Yes, yes. And I, and I think that theory that um, maybe they were both children of the Depression and so they, they clung to everything that they had for fear that it might go away, I think that has some truth to it. I wonder also whether it comes from the fact that as children they were interested in things that were considered to be ephemeral. So things like comic books, um, movie serials, um, things that were not high culture and were expected to just be seen once and then thrown away. And they both collected, they were collectors. We, here in the Bradbury Centre, they have the, um, the childhood scrapbooks that Bradbury kept. He would cut out the Buck Rogers uh, comic strip from the newspaper and paste them into this scrapbook. Um, and the weekend editions apparently were in colour and the weekday editions were in black and white. And the young Ray Bradbury would colour them in so that the black and white ones would match the colour ones. Um, so it's that kind of childhood thing of wanting to keep stuff because other people want to throw it away, I think is a large part of it. And then that carries on through their lives and they keep everything that's around them. And that, but I think they also both have the, the delight in creating as, as their work the very things that they loved as children. So Bradbury, okay, he wrote books. He also had uh, a comic book series in later life. He had a TV series in later life. Um, he did work for Disney. Um, he, he helped um, with the designs for Epcot and um, uh, Euro Disney. Um, so he's kind of building his career out of the very things that delighted him as a child. And I'm sure Harryhausen is doing that to a large extent as well. He's bringing to life on the screen the, the fantastic creatures that he knew about from, from books and from earlier films as well. So I suppose they were both futurists in that sense, because that's Sid Mead calls himself a futurist or is advertised as a futurist. So I suppose with involvement with the Epcot Centre and, and, and the whole idea of you know what would things look like in years to come, people would, would, would tap the brains of... of I was going to say people like Ray Bradbury, but there was no one else like Ray Bradbury, was there? There was just Ray Bradbury. I, I wonder what, um, in terms of his, Ray Bradbury's um, place in the literary firmament, I mean, among science fiction writers, he is obviously, uh, you know, w without equal in, in some senses. In terms of his overall um, place as a, as a literary giant um where does he fit i mean does he have a larger presence would you say on the global stage than in the u.s or is it is it the opposite oh that's a very good question i think he's he probably is better known here than elsewhere in the world but he, he is known in other countries and his books do sell well all over the world and here in the bradbury center they have editions uh, from almost every country in the world I was looking at a Russian edition the other day, and there are some um, other Eastern European countries represented in the collection. There's Japanese edition. Um, so he, he was known throughout the world and probably was one of the best-known science fiction writers to the general public, I think. Um, in terms of reputation, I think Bradbury lived long enough to see that his reputation grew and grew, even after the point where he was writing the best work, you know, his, he, he kind, his best work probably was done in the 1950s and the 1960s. He carried on writing right through to, to his final days, but his best work was from that earlier era. Um, but he lived long enough to see his work taught in schools, um, and then uh, the, ne the, the following generations of writers um, cr 
crediting him with being a major influence. So you get science fiction writers like Greg Bear, for instance, um, who will uh, absolutely acknowledge Bradbury. Kim Stanley Robinson will acknowledge the influence of Bradbury as well, as well as filmmakers like Spielberg um, will uh, recognize Bradbury's influence. Towards the end of Bradbury's life, because he lived so long to a ripe old age, uh, 92, just as um, Harry Hansen did, he received all sorts of plaudits at that point. He received major um, recognition from the French government. He, he had a, a medal that he received from them, the Order of Arts and Letters, which he was very proud of. Um, he, was, uh, he received a, a Pulitzer Prize special citation in the final years of his life. So he was beginning to get recognition from the establishment, which is great for somebody who's come up through the pulp magazines, through the, the ghetto of science fiction, managed to break out of the ghetto and then became this, this mainstream figure representing the genre. Um, so that's a, that's a great trajectory that he followed. And Harryhausen, it seems to me, had a similar trajectory. His work was adored while he was doing it, but not recognized so much. But as he eased into retirement, he started getting these accolades, um, such as the, the special Oscar um, and the, um, was it the BAFTA tribute um, a few years before he died. So they had, again, similar career trajectory there. This year, of course, has been the 25th anniversary of Ray receiving his honorary Oscar from both Tom Hanks and Ray Bradbury. And if people want to see that, they can see it on our Facebook page where we've had permission from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences to, uh, to, uh, to stream the actual video, which, is, um, which we're very grateful to, to the Oscars. So thank you for that. Um, I did want to say um, when... Ray Bradbury died. I was actually with Ray Harryhausen in his kitchen at the time because in 2012 I was recording commentaries for all of Ray Harryhausen's films which didn't have commentary tracks which was basically 85% of them and I arrived in the morning and I knew that Ray Bradbury had died because it was overnight news and, and I suspected that Ray Harryhausen knew as well and he was in the kitchen, he had the papers opened and there was a, a quite a large obituary that had been and put into, uh, I think it was the Times that Ray used to read. And um, and we discussed Ray Bradbury, and he said he was very sad. He knew that um, his health was failing, and he knew that, you know, the end was coming for him. And in less than 12 months, sadly, Ray Harryhausen left us, because he left us in May 2013. So um, in, in a little under a year later, he, he was gone as well. So he, he did say to me that virtually everyone he knew... Um, has died so it's i suppose it's the um it, it's 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 tricky isn't it outliving friends and family and feeling that you're very much alone and yet having the adulation as you were saying from steven spielberg for ray bradbury of course all of those people all of those younger filmmakers adored ray harryhausen as well so as much as their friendship kept them together their careers made sure that they were joined for all eternity in a sense yeah it it, it is very sad that um when you get old, everyone around you starts passing away. It's the curse of, of having a long and full life, I think. Um, but they came so close to dying in the same year. And it, it's amazing how parallel their lives were in, in that respect. Born in the same year and died within a year of each other. Um, quite remarkable. I didn't know um, that you were with Harryhausen on the day after Bradbury's death. Um, that must have been quite a sad occasion. For Harryhausen. 
Um, I, I'm just looking down at a note that I've got here from <clears throat> from when the special Oscar was given to Harryhausen. Um, Ray Bradbury says something like, um, we made a pact promising to grow old, but never to grow up. And I think that's terrific. And I think that kind of sums up um, the way they were. In their hearts, still 12-year-old boys, even though they were 92, 93, when they passed away. As John said, the video is now available for everybody to watch in full. And we released that on uh, Ray's birthday this year, on June 29th. The comments that we got were incredibly emotional. Some people actually were brought to tears by by watching this, by watching the two Rays in in Ray Harryhausen's moment of glory, uh, receiving such a wonderful eulogy from from his best friend on stage at the Oscars. These these two teenage boys who had, who, as you say, started with perhaps quite a niche interest, both of whom now get an adulation on such a large scale. Um, it, some people were, were very much moved by, by watching that speech from Ray Bradbury, and I think it's a testament to their friendship. Absolutely, absolutely. And I wonder if you know that Ray was one of, well, one of many people who uh, initiated the letter-writing campaign that got Harry Howes and that special Oscar. Um, I was looking through the, the files here the other day, and um, you've probably got the same letters in the Harry Howes collection, but... It's a real who's who of filmmakers, uh, of people who wrote in urging the Academy to give this special award. I, I made a list. Uh, uh, George Lucas, Dennis Murin, Ken Ralston, Gordon Hessler, who was one of Harry Harryhausen's directors, um, Miklos Rocha, John Dykstra, Joe Dante, John Landis, Burgess Meredith, who of course acted in one of uh, Harry Harryhausen's films, Charles H. Schneer, of course, of course he would be part of this campaign, um, Jim Danforth, um, Rick Baker, Stan Winston, Gail Ann Hurd, Nathan Duran, Albert Whitlock, and it goes on and on and on. And every one of these people wrote really heartfelt letters uh, in support of Ray. Um, and it's, a, it's a, probably the most remarkable set of letters I've ever seen. So many of the great and the good people who worked with Harry Housen, um, but also succeeding generations who were influenced by his work. He had an amazing influence on a couple of generations of special effects artists and film directors. A question I have for both of you, really, and this is for Connor and for Phil together. One of the big problems or challenges we have is that Connor is trying to continue our preservation and restoration of the creatures because they're all in different states of, of age and so on. Um, but also the paperwork, some of it is quite old, so Connor is trying to scan everything and make sure that he's using literally cotton gloves to, to touch and hold things. How does that compare with with your, is it mostly paper archive, Phil? How do you how do you hold things? Do you scan them and then leave the originals to one side? I mean, what areas do, do you and Connor cross over? I'd be fascinated to know. Yeah, it, it is a very similar operation. Um, it's Until very recently, um, most of the documents here were um, a mixture of originals and photocopies. What's been happening of late, because um, a small grant was, was given to allow the, the purchase of some special equipment, um, there's a systematic program of scanning documents. Um, so they're being not just scanned so that there is an electronic copy, they're being properly catalogued using uh, museum uh, software. So there is a, a, an ongoing program um, taking place. The original papers are still here. They've allowed me to handle them. but. Um, to be honest, I don't think they should. I think, they're, as, as you say, they're, they're precious items and 
the less handling they have, the better. And some of the documents here go back to the, the 1940s or the 1930s. So some of, some of them are in bad shape. The documents I've been working with mostly are from the 1980s because I'm interested in Ray Bradbury's television scripts. He had his own TV series in the, the 1980s and 1990s. And the remarkable thing about that is around that time, uh, people were using faxes an awful lot. And the correspondence between Bradbury and his producers was mostly done by fax. And they were using thermal paper. Oh, no. Oh, no. So most of these faxes have no. faded away. And some have disappeared entirely, but most of them you can still read. So that's part of the preservation process here, is to, to scan those to enhance them so that they can be read properly. And then the originals can be stored away out of the light so they don't age any further. Is there any, any way of recovering those? Because um, I used to have a thermal print fax. And, uh, it was a nightmare if you had receipts come through that way. You needed it for your, your tax return and so on um, because it would all start to fade. Is, is there any magical way with technology and iron filings or something to kind of recreate what was on them? Yeah, I, there are some tricks to do with um, uh, using a hairdryer. All <laughs> oh, right. Um, well, but, but mostly it's a, matter, it's a matter of getting a good scan and then you can do contrast enhancement and that, that brings the tech. Well, we do have the same problem, actually. Ray uh, was a big fan of using this fax machine, and quite a lot of his documentation is on thermal paper. And most of the time, you can you can use Photoshop or something similar to, to adjust the contrast. Um, but it, it is a matter of time, because you, you, we really have to rescue all this thermal paper before it disappears entirely. And uh, I think it's just so interesting that some, some some paper from the 1980s can de degrade at a faster rate than models from the 1930s that, that we have in the collection and um, it's another because it's something that could easily be overlooked the paper archive is, is vitally important um, it's easy to be distracted by skeletons dinosaurs and everything else but all of this correspondence is, is invaluable yeah yeah I, I don't know how it is for you but what they find here is that the the artifact so like raised toys and models and awards is typewriter the physical artifacts are the things that interest people when they come in and see what's in this collection um, but the really important stuff is what's in the files and of course then they're, they're not so interesting to look at to, to the to the lay person to a researcher obviously the papers are vitally important um, so to me what's in the files is the most interesting thing but people who are shown around here to see what's here they like to see the photos on the wall the film posters and all the models and toys line up well, when myself and connor give talks and when we're writing for magazines people are very interested in the films that weren't made so for every jason the argonauts or clash of the titans there'll be ray's version of war of the worlds or or force of the trojans that never got made in terms of um ray bradbury are there manuscripts you're looking for are there missing documents are there books that that have famously gone missing that he didn't never he never wanted released and so on what what unpublished works can we look forward to if any well there are still quite a few unpublished short stories that that was one of ray bradbury's biggest thing of course being a short story writer so there are quite a few of those still around some of them may be not good enough to be published in, in his lifetime but may be worthy of it as a kind of a retrospective thing now there's no end of unfilmed screenplays as well because he wrote um, 
endlessly for Hollywood from the 1950s onwards. Um, and only a handful of films ever got made from his scripts. Um, and, and that's my personal area of research. Fascinating chat there with Phil Nichols and fascinating to hear about Ray Bradbury. Now, before we go, we just wanted to bring you news of Mike Hankin. And those of you who have bought the Masters of Magic series will know Mike's for his um, his really comprehensive volumes on Ray Harryhausen. Well, Mike's got a brand new book in the works all about George Powell, the filmmaker who brought us uh, War of the Worlds and The Time Machine. But of course, other than that, he did the puppetoons with Ray Harryhausen and lots of other things in between. Now, Mike is creating a, a brand new book and he's looking for materials for the book, anything that can be found, really, that's uh, that's a bit rare. So if you've got something which is a personal correspondence with George Powell or interesting photos or even some magazine clippings, then I think Mike would be very pleased to hear from you. So, Connor, how can they get in touch with uh, with Mike to help him with his new George Powell book? Yeah, if you have anything of interest relating to the Puppetoons, you can contact Mike via his email address, which is mike.magics at btinternet.com. Now, I should point out that magics is spelt M-A-J-I-C-K-S. So it's mike.magics at btinternet.com. Now, we've provided Mike with as much material as we have available in the archive relating to Ray's involvement with the Puppetoons, but we know there must be a wealth of further information out there. And this is going to be an incredibly comprehensive book, similar to... Mike's Master of the Magic trilogy and if you think you could contribute to it then please get in touch with Mike Hankin Excellent, good news Connor Okay, well um, that's the end of this podcast and if you want to find out more then contact us via rayharryhausen.com where you can find our social media links Thank you and goodbye Copyright in the Ray Harryhausen podcast is owned by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a registered charity, number SC001419, 2017. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in parts without written permission from the Foundation. The views expressed within these podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of the Foundation, its trustees or employees. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com where you can find our Facebook and Twitter links.